Welcome, friends and foes, to another episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. If you're a fan of the show and have listened to previous episodes so far, then you will probably notice that the sound quality has drastically improved. This is because I've gone out and bought myself some new recording equipment, which I could only afford by meticulously saving up the money I've been receiving from my fantastic supporters on Patreon. In case you don't know, recording equipment is expensive as heck. And there's absolutely no way I would have been able to buy this on my own. So, thank you very much. In other news, I've started coughing up physical rewards for some of my patrons, and at the time of recording, this takes the form of a button that you can wear on your purse, you can give it to your dog, you can give it to your grandma, or even better, put it on your jacket. Wear it to concerts, amaze your friends. They'll be like, what is that? Oh, it's this neat sight. Brute Norse. What? Shoot horse. Yeah. Wear it like the badge of a secret society. You're part of a cult. Your mother is worried about you. A Norse cult. A mystic lodge of ecstatic warrior shamans who use folk magic to breathe life into balls of yarn, who wander off to suck milk straight out of the cow's titties in the cold Scandinavian night and puke it up. They puke it back into a pint glass at the side of your bed so you don't have to go to the store when you're hungover. Pretty nice, huh? Besides, the button is a fantastic conversation piece in itself. The design is adapted from a 5th century bracteate from northern Germany. A bracteate, in case you wondered, is sort of a gold medal. They began as imitations of Roman medallions with depictions of the emperor, and the Germanic ones probably depicted chieftains and Germanic kings. Quite a few of them seem to depict mythological scenes as well. Animals and symbols and the occasional runic inscription. This particular design I chose for my button is a bit atypical, but it falls within the broad category that we call C bracteates. That's the letter C. It shows the profile of a man's head wearing some sort of crown or crested headdress, maybe a diadem, and he's ejecting something out of his mouth, or maybe something is coming in. Now, what exactly it is, is anybody's guess, but he may be spitting, he may be vomiting, or perhaps something more mystical is going on. Sometimes these bracteates depict an arrow or a spiral coming out of the mouth. Sometimes it's an animal, or maybe it's whispering into the animal's ear. But it could also be a spirit, his spirit perhaps. It is a very common folk belief, with roots way back into prehistory in Northern Europe, that spirits could come and go through the nostrils and the respiratory organs. They sometimes also attack people through the nostrils and the respiratory organs, or other bodily orifices. Maybe this guy is a divine king, maybe he's a shaman, maybe he's a ritual specialist. It is an interesting design. Now you know that the Patreon doesn't all go to buy me gin and tonics. It's all earmarked and reserved for expenses such as these. So if you want to help and maybe get a pin of your own, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash brutenorse and pledge your support. I can also offer some candid lectures and talks, access to the Brute Norse Discord, and more. <sighs> Finally, now that we got that out of the way we can jump straight to the matter at hand. I'm not gonna lie, this episode felt like a bit of a duty to record. 
With Brute Norse, I often jump back and forth between different stages of Scandinavian history, and it's easy to forget that not everybody knows what the hell I'm talking about when I stab them in the gut with terms such as migration period, or when I dunk their face into a big bucket of Nordic Bronze Age. For example, do you know what the Vendel era is? Did you know that it's the same as the Merovingian period? Did you know that the Iron Age in Britain is a completely different Iron Age than it is in Scandinavia? So when does the Viking Age start? When did people first begin speaking Old Norse? What did they speak before they spoke Old Norse? For the sake of clearing up these and a whole lot of other questions, I lured my friend Axel out of his cave with some booze and stew so that we could sit down and record four hours worth of chatter about chronological timelines in Scandinavia. Four fucking hours of chronology. Jesus Christ. Obviously, there's no way anybody is going to subject themselves to that, so instead I decided to cut it out into a few hearty chunks. I hope it's not too much, but it's gonna be a lot to take in. Now in this first part, we're gonna get into the origins and development of chronology itself from the ancient Greek concept of the Golden Age to the modern archaeological timeline. Also stopping to look at how Norse culture in the Viking Age and the Middle Ages made sense of the past, and even developed their own method of dating ancient sites based on archaeological method. It seems we stood and talked like this before We looked at each other in the same way then But I can't remember where or when The clothes you're wearing are the clothes you wore The smile you were smiling, you were smiling then but I can't remember where or when Some things don't happen for the first time Seem to be happening again And so it seems that we have met before So I'm here with uh, Axel Klausen. 
whom you might remember from the uh, Barbarian Warlords of Free Germania episodes. A masterless archaeological berserker. Welcome. Thank you. I think that's uh, pretty much the correct way of describing me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, there's, there's one thing that I've... That I want to ask you this time, uh, which I think sets a good precedence for future podcasts as well. That is to start asking my guests, how did you get into this, uh, this way of life? This way of life, yeah. Exactly. How did you end up studying archaeology? Where, where did you get your interest in this stuff? Well, I think I speak for both of us when I say that the, um, the history and the archaeology and the accumulation of uh, centuries of people living in one spot more or less um, affected my way of looking at the landscape and um, when you run around on top of burial mounds without realizing they're burial mounds as a kid slowly growing up you realize that these are not natural mounds but they were man-made and then you start thinking more and reflecting more and more on this and yeah we're talking about the idea that that there were people yes. here before us. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so the uh, the concept of uh, past uh, extending way before uh, the past couple of hundred of years um, is something that extremely uh, like it fer- fermented in my uh, mind um, as a kid, and um, slowly but surely, uh, with time, um, I started digging more on my own and. Uh, that's when you start exposing yourself more and more to the past, and it became an identity, really. Mm. Um, these uh, legendary uh, kings uh, and heroes and what have you. And especially when you have names uh, attached to mounds, it makes it so much more interesting. That this individual, that spirit here, was named this and this and this. Of course, it's it's yeah, not sensical. I mean, you can never trust them. But as as a kid, you know, uh, it affects you. Yeah, because uh, for those who don't know this, uh, it might not be be obvious. But of course, uh, ancient monuments uh, and sites often have local names, yeah. and they are sometimes associated with uh, historical people or some legendary king. Sometimes we have sources about these people. Other times we do not. Sometimes these are more recent conjectures. My own experiences have been kind of similar. As a child, you're mystified by these uh, old sites. I didn't actually think that I had such a conscious uh, relationship to it until much later. I have no recollection as a child of being particularly interested in this. I have brief fleeting moments, like memories, of seeing dioramas and assemblages, you know, in museums, Mm. of like cremations in the Bronze Age or whatnot, you know? And being kind of perplexed mm, by them. Mm. It seems like there are, like my mom took me to these places and she took pictures of me there. So there, are, there's evidence that I had... You can actually a, back it up. Yeah, the seed <laughs> to, to this sort of fascination that would become uh, so central to my life later. Yeah. But I don't actually remember any of that myself. It's, it's interesting. For, for me, I, I have a, a, a memory. I think it was around five years or so. And... Um, it's a very extremely distinct memory for me. I can remember what time it was. Uh, it was a late afternoon. It was in the middle of summer. And me and my mom was walking not far from the um, uh, farm uh, that belonged to my grandparents. And just down the hill, there was this huge man here standing in a landscape, like a extremely alien 
and strange thing in a flat landscape. Yeah, you know? it's a standing stone. Yeah, standing yeah. stone, you know, um, like sticking out like a sore thumb. And I, I remember that my mom started talking about this man here, about there being someone buried there. And that was what she was taught by an archaeologist when she grew up, you know. So it's like, mm. and, and that's when I started uh, becoming more aware of the past. Um, but actually, my first interest was not um, the Iron Age, the Viking Age, you know, any other prehistorical period, which I'm now heavily invested into. Uh, it was actually trains. <laughs> trains. Uh, and <laughs> chronology of trains. And that's kind of important because uh, from early uh, childhood, I remember being um, very focused on how trains changed over time. Oh, yeah. Like you had like uh, steam engines and how that changed in the 20th century into other kinds of trains, more and more uh, electricity and... Yeah. That's that's kind of where it began, and uh, as 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 it was growing up, you know, when my uh, around seven, eight, nine, I started becoming more and more aware of a collective past and how it's changed gradually over time. Mm. Um, I've never been like extremely interested in, in like the Stone Age, if you will, going all the way back no. to. Stone Age was always very hard for me to grasp. Yeah, yeah, I did not have any concept of stone age oh. um, the neolithic that's that's kind of tangible to me yeah then yeah you get the, societies and you get the, the, the new stone age yeah. you know hence the new yeah. um and uh and uh but also definitely the bronze age uh was uh and has and always will be <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> a very mystic and um how should i say uh an exciting period yeah, well, some people um, seem to prefer the Bronze Age yeah, yeah. because Bronze it has Age. this mystique, but it's exactly. also, it seems oddly transparent in a way. Mm, 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 you mm. don't have any textual sources about it here mm. in the North, so yeah, you kind of just have what you have. It's it's the pet petroglyphs, you know. Of course, we do have sources from around in the same time period. They're not Scandinavian, of course, or, no. or, or Nordic at all. Um, but it kind of gives a glimpse into the, uh, the world uh, that is long forgotten. And that's that's kind of what draws me into the Bronze Age. Is that the uh, a lot of cultures during the Iron Age uh, we have a lot of similarities with, but the Bronze Age, at least partly, seems to be very different uh, culturally from uh, later cultures, uh, including our own, of course. For the last year or so, I have visited America uh, extensively uh, because of my fiance. Strange. I was aware of this before I went there, of course that. America does not have the same cultural landscape as Europe does. So the history of America is fairly recent, at least like the European yeah, uh, colonization. The Western, uh, Just a few hundred years. That creates a situation where people don't have this... Uh, they're not confronted as easily by this idea of this long chain of events that we mm. call history, mm. dating all the way back there. Of course, like everybody else, they're intellectually of aware of this. Recorded history, that is. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, they don't go out into the landscape and get told, oh, here is something really ancient, you know? Uh, some areas, I guess, there you, must you, be. Of course, for Native yeah. Americans, uh, like, uh, you have a lot of um, traditions um, connected to the landscape. It might be a ridge, you know? And there's, like, stories attached to this mound, uh, which is, you know, either artificial or natural and you have a lot of those traditions but you don't have the um the way of uh, observing it the way we do in in um, in europe for instance or in eurasia or eurabia uh, it's 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 different for us 
mm. and, and how we perceive the past um, comparably to Native Americans, for instance. It makes me think that being able to walk outside mm. where you live throughout most of the country, unless you live in the city, or even in the city in some cases, you can find an ancient monument, you can find a standing stone. There are burial mounds exactly. in the suburbs, for instance. Mm. And in Oslo, you have parts of the city that are named uh, after pre-Christian sacred sites. This ancient landscape is always there. But also place names. I yeah. mean, in, in, in Bergen, you have place names attached to one historical or semi-historical <laughs> figure. Yes. Mm-hmm. But when you walk there today, it's impossible to, to imagine, of course. Exactly, of course. When you go to America, you also hear about these people uh, who believe in like the Kensington Runestone. Or they... <laughs> yeah. I went to this place called the Newport <coughs> Tower in Newport, mm-hmm. uh, Rhode Island, where there is a tower they believe it might, might have been a mill or something like that. And there are all sorts of uh, speculations tied to it because it's one of the earliest structures of the American colonization. Mm-hmm. They don't have any like clear recollection of what it exactly was, but as I mentioned, they do think it's a mill. But of course, some people have said that this could be uh, the Templars, some have said it's the Chinese, and of course, some people have said it's the Vikings or Norse-speaking people. Of course. But... um. It doesn't anything. Yeah, it doesn't resemble anything that I have <laughs> yeah. seen from Norse architecture. Mm-hmm. Certainly, not even like medieval architecture. No, it says something about our need to have strong ties with the past, to establish some sort of connection with uh, something that is out of the line of sight somehow. And and that's kind of the thing as well as you mentioned uh, these uh, these places in uh, in the new world, if you will, mm-hmm. um, and how they are supposedly attached to the old world. Uh, with people migrating their way before <laughs> any like mass migrations happens. Uh, yeah, so there can be no direct contact uh, exactly. either way. It's, so there's it's no tradition. Unlikely. But, but uh, it's also the exposure to the idea of a past and how important it is for us to be attached to the past. Yes. And, and creating identity in a otherwise uh, inhospitable country, for instance, you know, as it was back then. I'm not saying that, of course, uh, people in the 16th, 17th century um americas uh, that were from europe you know had a need to attach themselves back to the viking age or, or before mm-hmm. that later generations as they got exposed to um you know uh, literature and but also museums you know an exhibition or a book that deals with vikings um and how that in turn was applied by these people that were descended from the uh, uh, colonists, uh, but also later migrations, of course. Because the thing is that mm. to, to, to America, there's been a continuous migration. And, and that's also something that's very interesting, is how later generations, um, let's say in the 19th century, took their culture with them when they settled in, in the Americas. And of course, they also brought with them their past, their, their heritage. So they become a sort of cultural time capsule. And you can see the same with Norwegian Americans as well. Mm. And they cling to these things that uh, sometimes are taken for granted or that Scandinavians will think is weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I heard the same. Somebody said about Chinatown in New York that Chinatown is like a time capsule of China in the 1970s. <laughs> it's, it's true, though. I, I, yeah. I, I, see, I see where it's coming from, you know. And, and it's something that we, we need to also respect, I think. Mm. Um, the, the need for people to bring their uh, their their identity, their their culture, their heritage with them, it's it's a comfort I think uh, for for most people. There is uh, a chunk of Chinese culture being preserved in mm. New York City right exactly. now, 
that does not exist in at you know home. at home in, in yeah, the yeah, old yeah, country. Yeah, yeah. In a sense, you could argue that there's a bygone era of Chinese history that lingers on in the southern yeah, ones. Exactly. And this ties very nicely into what we're going to talk about today. Chronology. The noble art and science of applying names and borders across time and space. Exactly. Arbitrary ones, very often. Oh yeah, undoubtedly. How do we actually establish a timeline with ages? Because we have the Stone Age, we have various stages of the Stone Age, mm. the Bronze Age, we have the Iron Age, the Middle Ages, Renaissance, Modern Era. Yeah. The Modern Era starts after the Middle Ages. What do we say, like the 16th century? Uh, depending upon where you are, of course, because that's also something we take in consideration. Yeah. Um, but yeah, approximately 16th century, uh, the Renaissance. But of course, it needs to be said that in Norway, for instance, we never had a Renaissance. Yes. So the Renaissance <laughs> came and went without us being invited to the party. Exactly. So, um, and, and that goes for many other countries as well. Um, so their artificial, uh, like uh, categories, uh, they're artificially created by modern man. And so the modern era starts several hundred years ago, and we're still mm. in it apparently. And uh, even though. People who lived in the early modern era had more in common with people in the Middle Ages than they do with us. Likewise, there are people uh, who, until recently, lived in the Stone Age in Africa, for instance, and yeah. many still do, technologically. Yeah. So, officially, the Stone Age ended how many thousand years ago? Uh -huh. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Depending upon where you look, uh, if you have an uh, Eurocentric view, um, it's, it's of course you know it ends with the Neolithic, yeah, which is approximately around um, two thousand BC, um, give or take a few centuries. Yeah, and um, but of course you know somewhere else it's ended way before that. Somewhere else they never had. A Neolithic period. <laughs> and like so. when the Bronze Age starts here, they had already had Bronze Age for centuries. What we're going to talk about tonight is essentially how arbitrary this can be, and we're going to discuss some of the details as to why the chronology can be so confusing in Northern Europe as well, and how things can vary from country to country, or even within the same country itself. Mm. How did all this begin? How did we get the, the idea of historical eras? Where does it start? Where does it start? <sighs> thing is that we have no idea, actually. <laughs> we do have some sources. Um, we have historical sources mentioning a concept of like a 3H system, uh, where you begin with the uh, Stone Age, you progress to the Bronze Age, and you end up in the Iron Age. Mm. But you also have older sources, um, especially uh, like early Greek sources, mm. that deals with the different ages. The different ages. The different ages. The gold age, the silver age, the bronze age, the iron age. Mm. And how that in turn reflects how noble humans are. And so you start out <laughs> in the noblest age and then yeah. it kind of falls into decline. Disintegrates over time, yeah. Very popular with uh, contemporary uh, anti-modernist yeah, uh, yeah. philosophies, for instance. This idea of the golden age is something you find, especially in mythologies, I guess, and, and ancient religions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a very traditional and, way of seeing and, the world. And, and, it's, uh, and, and the earliest... Nostalgic. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's nostalgia. It's, uh, it's uh, a bygone age that was better than the current one. 
and it's it's something that a lot of people still say nowadays. It was you know uh, we often hear older people or, or young people even you know say that mm. it was better before. It was always going to be better before, and um, that's a, a mindset that is nothing new. Uh, in the Western world, at least, and um, the the earliest source is the uh, different metallic ages by Hesiod. Oh, I see. Um, and Hesiod he um, wrote a poem um, called "Works and Days," and um, this is around seven hundred BC, give or take a few decades. And he uh, divides the ages, as I already mentioned, into a golden age, a silver age, a bronze age, a heroic age, and heroic age, an iron age. Oh, and um, the uh, it's it's interesting because, of course, you know the gold and the silver and the uh, the other ages they're seen as virtuous ages, mm. and it's only the bronze age and the iron age that is considered as metallic ages. Yes, uh, by Hesiod, ages of darkness and materialism and boredom exactly 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 and um of course the thing is that we have to remember that like during this time period in uh, in greek culture um they they had like started using and replacing bronze with iron and there were a lot of heirlooms that were still kept at home so especially in the more wealthier households antiquities yeah, in 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 a sense, not necessarily antiquities, but uh, antiquities, uh, but antiques. Yeah. Yes. So that's what I meant. Sorry. Antiques. Um, that two generations ago, my grandfather used a bronze sword, but now I have an iron sword, and um, it seems that you know, for a lot of um, more well-to-do people in the uh, in this time period, it seems that they had an, an ability to accumulate objects over time of course for the peasantry and the, and the simple people that wouldn't necessarily be the case but for the aristocrats and the the warrior elite it was uh, definitely something that was uh, possible to do so so this is uh, when you have the the earliest literary work dealing with different ages and um, it's it's interesting how that in turn over time changed it's something that we nowadays take for granted you know the concept of time but time wasn't always uh, something people had luxury to think about <laughs> no nor, nor was it important to think about a past and a future just the here and now is what matters um but uh, later on you have the um uh, a source by uh, lucretius and um uh, lucretius is a roman author um and he uh, dissects time into three major ages and you have the stone age you have the bronze age and you have the iron age mm. and this is kind of where it all begins and for a lot of uh, antiquarians in the 19th century in 18th century um, they, they they went back to lucretius as a source uh, and used his works to divide uh, their collections into three sections uh, oh, three categories the stone the bronze and the iron and how that's in turn created chronology through time so so this basically created the foundation of the modern antiquarian sciences but of course it's it's also an antiquarian way of looking at time yes which is 
one of the major issues uh, about this system. <clears throat> and of course, it's a tool yeah. uh, more so than anything else used by uh, the uh, antiquarians, but also by later generations, you know, when mm. you're archaeologists. And it doesn't quite take into account the fluidity. It does of, uh, not. It does of not. development, oh. and that's that's one of the major faults. And um, um, the uh, the first antiquarian that used the three H system was actually a Danish. The Danish one. Oh, Danish. so it's a Scandinavian contribution. Yeah, it's oh. a Christian uh, Jorgensen Thomson. Uh, and he uh, was is actually kind of an interesting story of how it all began, because his system was uh, later applied by other scholars and other museums around Europe. Because before this, they didn't really have a system uh, to divide, uh, you know, um, time into sections uh, and desiccate time mm. uh, into ages. And um, Christian Jorgensen. Um, he uh, was um, the first, uh, how should I say, um, he, w- he was appointed to uh, position as the um, Royal Commission for the uh, Preservation of Antiques in Copenhagen at the time. And it was founded in 1807. So this is the early 19th century, uh, which is important. Before that, they didn't really have any systems at all. And of course, you know, when he was appointed to this, um, he didn't have any system either. But when he got in charge of the collections, he started putting them into different ages. It's interesting because we have the uh, National Museum in Copenhagen today. There was a monastery. So he had his collections in a monastery. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> a temple. Exactly. <laughs> Essentially. It's, it's, it's fitting, I think. Yeah, but, yeah, but, uh, but the word museum, it's a, a temple. temple to, the, to yeah. the muses. Exactly. They go to be inspired. Exactly. It's so is, wonderful. It, it, it is, it is, it is. And, and considering the fact that this was uh, one of the more important, at least back in uh, earlier times in Copenhagen history, uh, monasteries, considering it's also that close to uh, Christian Borg, uh, the big castle where the king lived. The, the palace. The palace, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, so it's, it's a very good place to make a national museum. So he, he used the works of uh, Lucretius, but um, <coughs> so he is the first one to put uh, his collection chronologically. And um, it's, uh, it's a system that is still being used today, and that's something we need to keep in mind. It's a 200 or so year old system. And as I said, also, it's not a flawless system. His, his work was uh, revolutionary in many ways. And um, it's uh, not until later um, by um, uh, the works of uh, John Lubbock in um, the um, uh, British Museum that he starts to, to use this. Uh, on his own collections, but also using it a bit more refined, that you don't only have like a Stone Age, you have a Paleolithic, you have a Mesolithic, you have a Neolithic, mm. and same goes with the Bronze Age. Later on, you know, people adding to that, the Bronze Age isn't just one big period, you have like sub-periods dividing into six different parts, for instance. Mm. Um, and um, of course, if you just focus a bit on, on the Stone Age, so Paleolithic means Old Stone Age, Mesolithic means Middle Stone Age, and Neolithic means New Stone Age. Mm. Um, so, uh, 
so it's it, it tells us that the concept of uh, dividing even a uh, period an archaeological period into smaller parts to have more of an overview and uh, and also creating uh, a better tool for uh, coming generations and the thing is also we have to keep in mind that a lot of antiquarians uh, but also farmers and and ordinary people when they found objects in the soil uh, they just removed all of them you know they didn't mm. think about strategography uh, they didn't think about chronology they just collected everything yeah. and just shipped it essentially to the museum or someone picked it up um, and uh, it's like you have all kinds of finds from a farm but they don't tell you where they were found. It's no. just from the farm. Yes. So the uh, the antiquarians they didn't really have a tool or anything uh, to determine the exact age of these items. Mm. Um, and that's when um, the uh, the uh, antiquarians started asking that if you find something, just leave it. We'll come and excavate it, and we'll make a um, an overview essentially. Of where the items are situated in the soil uh, yeah. or in the ground. So you create, yeah, you analyze it by the layers. Exactly. And then when you have enough exactly. information, you can. Yeah, because that's that's something that is, 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 is still important nowadays for an archaeologist is context, and the context is is without the context, the items are just items, and that's something they started doing in the early nineteenth uh, century, or at least it was advocated by, uh, it was advocated by. Um, uh, Thompson, uh, Chris, Chris and Jürgen Thompson, uh, to do so uh, because he saw the uh, opportunities presenting themselves. Because otherwise, it's just uh, a collection, nothing else. Mm. Uh, it doesn't matter what age it is. Uh, people collect because they're, you know, curiosities more so than anything else. Yeah. And, nice uh, old stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And um, and that also kind of brings me, uh, of course, this is before his time, but back to uh, Michel Mercati. I'm not sure if you know of him. No, who's that? This is an Italian. Um, he was um, a, uh, a superintendent of the Vatican Botanical Garden. <laughs> okay, yes. It sounds strange. <laughs> sounds like an expert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he uh, got in charge of the uh, fossils and stone collection belonging to the Vatican. And yes, of course, because the, yeah, yeah. they would have that. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> they have all kinds of stone <laughs> objects lying around. And it's interesting because of his uh, works, he, um, uh, of course, living in Rome, you know, and having access to all of this, they also have a big collection. And it's a question of what do you do with the collection and how do you use the collection that you have. Mm. And... Um, the thing is that uh, during the 16th century, as you know, uh, there is a tradition uh, that extends all the way back to the Iron Age, uh, where you have thunderstones. Yeah, thunderstones. And that's exactly what uh, was brought to the Vatican, was yeah. thunderstones. Of course, yes. they weren't thunderstones, though. No. Uh, for the listeners who are not aware of thunderstones... They are a very interesting category of item. They are essentially, for the most part, Stone Age tools. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have to be. They can also be fossils. Uh, but often they are Stone Age axes or something similar, you know, of that kind. And they are found in contexts out of the Stone Age. For example, 
under the floor of uh, of an Iron Age house, or under the threshold, or something like that. Within historical memory, people would store them in their house, uh, believing that these were essentially thunderbolts thrown by a thunder deity or something like that. Mm. Uh, that if you kept these in your house, it means you know there's this metaphor that alike chases away the alike in a sense. Okay. So and uh, lightning never strikes twice the same place. So you can fool the lightning by st- storing its product. You know that. Mm-hmm. This, like a piston, like a gun cartridge, nine yeah, millimeter yeah, yeah, cartridge yeah, yeah. or something to, like to that. Do like you carry shots. it around your neck or something like that to avoid getting shot or something like that. Mm. It's a hypothetical, but that's the sort of like mentality we're talking about yeah. here. Yeah. So, so I mean, so his 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 works uh, and and his um, dedication to these uh, lithic stones meant that uh, he created a analysis of them and he started comparing them with each other. And of course, you know, in the catalog it said thunderstones. Uh, but he soon realized that when people traveled back from the New World, they brought with them tools the natives used. And they used lithics. They used stone tools. And he started comparing these stone tools with the tools, uh, oh, the, the stones that were in, in the collection of the Vatican. And he soon realized that they're identical. They're made the same <laughs> way. How can that be? What a coincidence. So... He um, started um, investing more and more time into uh, researching the uh, coincidence, as it were, as it was called back then, Mm. and soon realized that it's not a coincidence. It's because in Europe, we had people at one point who used the same tools. Mm. These axes, these uh, knives, these daggers, and what have you. And they were, you know, uh, chipped the same way. Because it's basically, I'm not sure I'm going to go too much into uh, how these are made. You just chip away at the stone. You create grooves and a neat surface and reducing the size of the flint stone, for instance. We're going to get an angry flint napper on our tails. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know more about this than me. But apparently yeah. there are many techniques to flint napping. Oh, yeah. I don't understand any of them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't understand. There's, there's, there's dozens of them. It's mind-blowing what a technology it's, it is. It's, it's, it's not something I'm a specialist in. Definitely not. Um, but there's enough uh, similarities that, of course, um, you know, people started drawing, or at least he started drawing the uh, comparison between the uh, North American uh, lithics and the... Stone Age lithics from Europe or from around Europe, as it were. Mm. Of course, he didn't put them into a chronology or anything, but he 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 understood that there was some similarities between the two, and that's kind of when uh, the idea of a Stone Age, uh, in 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 a scientific way, was born. Mm. Uh, and not just out of a like a use uh, wood and a use stone, and then later on it changes into bronze, but you actually had an age where people used stones for, as tools. And that's, that's one, one of the things also that is very important to keep in mind, is that these ages, they're divided because of the tools people used. Mm. The tools are now no longer stone, they're bronze, they're no longer bronze, they're of iron. And that is the stages that a lot of um, Europe went through. I'm going to jump back a little bit and go to Scandinavia again. And um, we'll just talk a little bit about the pre-modern perspectives on, on history and chronology. Because, well, if we go totally metaphysical here and we talk about Norse mythology, for instance, mm. 
that creates at least a symbolic uh, perspective of the world, where you have the creation of the world, you have a legendary past where uh, people were <laughs> somehow kind of more magical. This is a common thought. Uh, you find that even in classical oh, scholarship yeah. exactly. in the Middle Ages, but like that heroes of the past lived for 300 years. In Norse mythology, you essentially have these uh, three eras. So you have the mythological past, you have the mythological present, and you have the mythological future, which is just when the world will end. Uh, which is quite interesting, because many polytheistic religions don't really have a clear idea of when is the world going to end. But the Old Norse religion had, and uh, they thought it was going to happen soon. We are at the end of the mythological current. We're going to step into the mythological future. It's, it feels kind of redundant to say it, but, but it's, 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 it's not, it's not as intuitive. Perceived. If you are uh, an animist living in the jungle, it's not something that will occur to you that the world will end. Of course or not. Like that. Of course not. And this is something that uh, the... Uh, well, the idea of Ragnarok is a little bit complex, so we won't get too much into it, but um, there is, for example, this idea that the world will end soon probably got pronounced a little bit by the contact with Christianity in the Viking Age, for instance. Mm. And the reason why many of our sources focus on Ragnarok is probably because they talk so much about this. It was interesting to the Christians and tolerable because it proves that paganism destroys itself, in a sense. Mm. Uh, and also creates kind of a bridge between uh, the pagan ancestors and, uh, and, the, and the Christian current. But there is also indications that uh, they had a more quote-unquote historical perspective of chronology as well. If we focus for a moment on uh, Snorri Sturluson, who is the most famous Norse chronicler and author by far, uh, who lived in Iceland in the 13th century and had a proper scholarly education. So by medieval standards, he was as good an academic as anybody else. He probably had a as good an overview of Nordic and Scandinavian history as it was possible to have at the time. And like the historians of today, Snorri also sought to find a coherent picture that somehow explained and unified the sources. Uh, but he also worked within the paradigm of his own age, right? So he was a Catholic Christian working within a scholarly classical tradition. They've already been discussing this for hundreds of years by then. What was he tasked with? He, had, he has two main works associated with him. One is... The Edda, which is a treatise on the pagan mythology and poetry, to preserve it for future generations. Then you have Heimskringla, which is the chronicle of, uh, of Norwegian Viking Age kings. So this poses an intellectual problem for Snorri, we can assume. Because, well, first of all, the authority of the royal genealogies based themselves on pagan traditions. Mm. Uh, so the kings descended from the gods, but the kings had not been pagan for about 200 years. Paganism itself was actually quite illegal in Snorri's time, but this pagan tradition has authority politically in Scandinavia. So how do you circumvent this? Well, to a medieval Christian, of course, uh, the obvious answer is that the tradition of the church must have the final say. So Norse historians found the solution by placing... Uh, the entirety of Norse history within the framework of classical tradition and thought. So to Snorri and his peers, all people are essentially descended from Adam and Eve, of course. That is the fundamental, you know, mm, mm, mm. Uh, starting point as far as humanity is concerned, no matter what. 
then we got split up when the Tower of Babel fell. We even have actually uh, etymological and grammatical speculations in Norse texts where they understand that languages somehow develop over time. Uh, and then you have like almost this idea that could lead into like comparative linguistics. This mm. is probably not an innovation of Norse scholarship, but something that came to Iceland through uh, church uh, educations that people got. Now, the Tower of Babel fell, scatters people across the globe, and basically what Snorri does in the Edda is that he says that the gods of his ancestors, uh, from whom the Scandinavian kings are descended, were not actually gods, but regular Joes who migrated from Troy. And they were also exactly. descended from Adam and Eve. They were only elevated into godhood uh, posthumously. This is called Euhemerism. And uh, their identities were stolen by demons who posed as gods, taking the identities of ancient kings, basically, and tricking people into, you know, worshipping them. In that regard, Snowy was actually quite sympathetic towards pagans, but not sympathetic to their gods. And, uh, well, I think you know this, Axel. Who else claims descent from Troy? Who else? Yeah. You have all of them, no. Yeah, the, the Britons in the 10th, um, 9th century work. There's a history of the Britons mm-hmm. claiming descent from, from Aeneas. Uh, the Romans themselves. Yes, the Romans. No, no doubts about that. Um... What Snorri is basically saying is that the roots of Norse society has the same proud heritage as the Romans and other established cultures. Mm. So he's basically saying that. We are as good as everybody else. But he's also placing Norse history within a certain time frame and tradition. We talked about this in the Barbarian Warlords episode, but Norse people also had a certain awareness of, uh, of history through their own storytelling traditions. They were aware that the Romans had existed, and they were familiar with the migration period, mm-hmm. at least like that migrations had happened, that there had been great wars between legendary peoples, uh, so they knew about the Goths, they knew about Theodoric, uh, they knew about the Huns. Attila, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they wrote Attila the Hun into their mythology, into mm. their legends. So, even though it's not history as we know it, it's legendary history. It's a historical legend, which is great and fair on its own terms, I think. It's not just something providing context, but it's a way of creating meaning and uh, proving metaphysical or, like, cultural points. Uh, but... Snorri does mention something that is a little bit more interesting than simply him appropriating classical thought and applying it to his Norse history. Uh, He touches upon something that seems almost like an attempt at a Scandinavian historical chronology that bases itself on scientific principles. Or at least partly. Yeah, well, it's a, it, yeah, yeah, it's a deductive method, exactly, sure. uh, though faulty. Uh, it, yeah. it attempts to, to say something concrete about historical mm. chronology. Because in the prologue of Heimskringla, he states that there are basically two main distinguishable phases of Nordic prehistory. He says that there is the Burning Age, or the Cremation Age, and the Barrow Age. That is when people were put in burial mounds. That's, uh, in all Norse, that's the Brunaold and the Haugsold. What he's saying is that there is an awareness that his ancestors, or at least when they lived back in Scandinavia, he was an Icelander, uh, he wouldn't be very familiar with standing stones and that sort of thing. 
But he had heard about it, mm. clearly, and maybe seen it when he traveled to Norway as well. Uh, so he's saying that uh, the ancestors had different burial practices at different times, and that they could make some sort of chronology based on this. So first people were cremated, and then uh, they made burial mounds. He also says that standing stones is a part of the age of cremations. So they cremated people, raised stones after them, but then somebody had the idea that they wanted to be put in mounds with weapons and horses and oh. stuff like that. And basically, their immediate family, what should I say, the dynasty, followed through, and people began copying this because it had prestige. It's not idiotic to assume such a development. No, far from it. No. Of course, it's it's erroneous in a way, assuming yeah. that the Age of Tumulus began already in the Bronze Age. Not only that, this continues more or less up into the Viking Age, and it comes um, in and out of fashion. It, it does, it does, it does. I'm, I'm not going to go too deep into it, but of course, you know, towards the end of the Middle Bronze Age, as we call it, yeah. um, there is uh, a, a change in the burial practices, where it's superseded by uh, Urnfield burials, hence the name Urnfield culture. <laughs> yes. So they started cremating people instead of burying them in huge burial mounds. Um and it's 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 quite a distinct and different way of doing it uh, when you have like centuries where you have uh, very exclusive burial mounds and then suddenly it just stops. And incidentally, it's supposedly in around the same uh, time when you have the uh, collapse of the Bronze Age uh, culture in around the Mediterranean. Oh, yes. So Love something happened. The elites in Scandinavia no longer could afford the, uh, the position they once had. Um, it's, of course, I mean, how you go about explaining it is, uh, is still hotly debated. Mm. But essentially is that they no longer could support their um, aristocratic way, way of life. And, and, um, and that's what I mean about uh, the age of the burial mound, the age of cremation. Mm. Is of course, even in the working age, they cremated people. Uh, Would you call it the the wanking age? (laughs) The wanking age, yeah, the wanking age. You (laughs) had a lot of cremation burials. Um, So they practiced both burial mounds and uh, cremation. Story believed that um, it was a fashion that caught on in Denmark first. Which, of course, might might be true, mind you. I wouldn't be surprised if that's actually historically correct. He says that it it began in, in Denmark, that's when you started having burial mounds, and then it moved on to Sweden and Norway. So it's an interesting means of, of the, the, arguing. The, the, the thing is that, of course, the, um, uh, the the way that Snorri explains how things gradually change over time, especially considering the way that people were interred, uh, either you know, they were cremated or they were interred in, in burial mounds, uh, it's not entirely uh, correct of him to say that there was one way of burying people and the other way, because, of course, even uh, in the... Um, uh, migration period, which is known for the big burial mounds and what have you, you still have people being cremated. We have a lot of cremation burials in an age of mm. burial mounds. Uh, but I think his his point of view is more the elite uh, than anything else. Yeah, and uh, not necessarily the the the, uh, the other levels of society, the middle class, and of course the poor people mm. uh, and slaves. It's just kind of funny that uh, that to Snorri, a Bronze Age burial looks like it's in the same era as the Viking Age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but that's exactly the way a lot of antiquarians looked at these mounds as well. Mm. You know, you you use the source that is closest to you, and they used Snorri. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, but not only just Snorri, but other sources, mind you, and um, classical sources. And and you also have, like, I mean, when it comes to... um, 
uh, burial mounds. Uh, even Homer talks about burial mounds of these uh, these uh, legendary Greek heroes being interred into huge mounds. Mm. So the ghosts show the the awareness of mounds and heroes and great deeds, essentially, and how that int- and of course also over time changes uh, the concept of a good age, a bad age, if you will. And that's that's what I think is so interesting about Snorri is that sure his uh, way of looking at it is not entirely archaeologically correct but it's also partly correct <laughs> yeah. it's charming to see that they had an interest in this oh definitely and and also the awareness of the past in general 